Welcome to the Drawdown Agenda podcast, a collaboration between the Sustainability Agenda and Drawdown, a truly inspiring project that ranks and evaluates the 100 most powerful carbon reduction solutions that can help us achieve drawdown when greenhouse gas concentrations peak and begin to fall. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every fortnight, I speak to leading drawdown researchers who have worked to identify and measure different drawdown solutions. We explore the research, discuss how these solutions work in practice, and learn how we can take collective action to achieve drawdown and help reverse global warming. You know, drawdown for me is about so much more than carbon. It's about regenerating the biology, and that biology that regenerates uh, serves humans and nature. It's, it's this regeneration that we need to really catalyze. And if we do a good job of regenerating life on this planet, nature will do a fine job of balancing carbon. I'm very pleased today to welcome Brian von Herzen to the podcast. Brian is an ocean scientist, an engineer, and an entrepreneur. Much of his career has been in Silicon Valley, where he developed innovative technical solutions for companies like Pixar, Dolby, Microsoft, and others. Brian is the founder and executive director of the non-profit Climate Foundation and the inventor of marine permaculture, a means to restore life in ocean regions shut down by global warming. So thank you very much, Brian, for taking the time today to join me on the Drawdown Agenda. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you, Fergal. I'm a big fan of Drawdown, and we're really enjoying working with Drawdown to uh, make uh, these various approaches feasible. Absolutely. Excellent. So a good place to start maybe, Brian, if you just talk a little bit about what you do and what you're preoccupied with at the moment. Yes, I'm the executive director at the Climate Foundation, and we're focusing on working to regenerate life in the oceans. Now, that's a tall order, but we've identified that 93% of global warming is going into the ocean today. And our challenges are in our, is that, that all that warming is really preventing uh, the overturning circulation in the tropics and the subtropics that would normally uh, enable primary production. And the difficulty is that primary production is down an estimated 40% across subtropical and tropical oceans. And these uh, low productivity deserts, if you will, in the ocean are moving further and further towards the poles. So it's actually decreasing the productive ocean area on, on Earth. So what, what is this primary production, Brian? Oh, this is all about growing seaweeds, macroalgae, microalgae. This is the habitat and food for forage fish, the base of the food chain in the oceans. And so why does this matter? Well, the reason it matters is that most life is in the ocean, first of all. And did you know that 99% of the biosphere is actually in the ocean? It's 70% of the area, but if you consider how deep the ocean is and how deep the fish are, if you look at the volume of livable space, the ocean has 99% of it, and we came from the ocean. So fundamentally, the ocean has a very deep connection. Do you know that more than half the oxygen that you breathe is coming from the ocean? Wow. In every breath. So if we don't take care of the ocean, the ocean can't take care of us. Yes, yes. Now, if you're in a hospital and somebody brought the ocean into you, where are we? Are we in the operating table or is it you know, in the triage? <laughs> how, how would you characterize the state of the ocean in that sense? Well, we have collapsed most of the world's fisheries. 
we have uh, decimated the population of, of fish in the ocean. I was amazed to read that 90% of all the big fish in the ocean are gone. That, you know, compared to 100 or 200 years ago, they've been fished. They're simply, they are simply no longer there. And if you look at all the fish biomass, more than half of that fish biomass has been fished in the last one or two generations. So we're dealing with an ocean that's quickly approaching an aquatic desert. And um, that's even before you consider coral bleaching or the decimation of the kelp forests. So bad, very, very bad. It is a dire situation, uh, but that's one reason we've been working for the last 10 years to develop approaches that can help to regenerate life in the ocean and get us back on track. Now, there are many different uh, layers to this and dimensions to this. Can you talk about the connection with the state of the, the ocean and carbon dioxide emissions and climate change? Yes, well, the oxygen and the carbon dioxide go hand in hand because when we photosynthesize life on the planet, we draw down carbon, we fix it in biological form, and we increase the amount of oxygen available. So the nature has been doing this for billions of years in soils and in the seas. And we need to use all those technologies and, and approaches to help get nature back on her feet so that she can do the job she's been doing for billions of years, and that is fixing carbon. And so fundamentally, we need to help nature fill those nutrient value chain gaps that exist because of climate disruption. And we've been studying those and understanding those. And one of them is nitrate and phosphate in the ocean. That fundamentally, it's down deep. But unless you have enough energy to bring that deep water up to the surface, then you can't, you know, you have to restore overturning circulation in order to restore the production of seaweed, macroalgae, and microalgae that can fundamentally produce that oxygen that we need to breathe. Yes, yes. Now, in Drawdown, uh, your focus is on the marine permaculture. Can you talk a little bit about what that is and maybe describe what a good marine permaculture looks like? Yes, our inspiration for marine permaculture comes from the most productive ecosystem on the planet, and that is the kelp forest. I was amazed to learn that the kelp forest fixes 3,000 grams of carbon per square meter per year or that converts to 3,000 tons of carbon per square kilometer of kelp forest. Did you know that's more productive than a tropical rainforest? And so those wonderful kelp forests that are off of Ireland, off of Scotland, off of east, east coast of North America and the west coast of North America and Australia, they are the tropical rainforests of our temperate zones, the highest carbon flux on the planet. Wow. But but small, not at the same scale. What, what, what kind of scale are they? Well, they, I believe there's uh, many thousands of square kilometers of kelp forest. In fact, our understanding is that uh, human cultivation of seaweed and kelp forest approaches 1,000 square kilometers already. So we are, in fact, growing. But the problem is, without the nutrients, you can't grow. And so what we're working to do is restore that overturning circulation in the tropical and subtropical oceans using marine permaculture. Can you just clarify what the uh, overturning circulation? Yes, that's where um, w normally wind 
would come off of the continent and go out to sea and would push the water away from the, from the land. And of course, deep water must come up to replace it. And so the, under normal conditions, enough wind stress will cause the water to push offshore and have deep water come up and replace the water that once was there. So that's the normal circulation. Now with global warming, the water gets warmer and less dense, and that warm layer goes deeper and deeper, which means they have to go farther and farther to bring the cold water up to the surface. And it takes more and more wind energy to achieve the same goal. And so we're losing the race. We're already down 40% in some regions like uh, of the subtropics and the tropical regions, which is why kelp forests are down 95% in California and Tasmania and other regions. And they're, they're showing signs of not coming back unless we do something. And that's what marine permaculture is all about. How do we restore, use endogenous energy, that means wind, solar, wave energy, to actually restore that overturning, bring the deep water back up to the surface, and effectively provide the macronutrients and micronutrients that kelp forests need to survive. So from what you're saying, kelp forests have been devastated. Oh, they have. Off of California, 95% loss. And it was due to uh, the big warm blob 2014 the huge El Nino of 2016, and the associated ecosystem shift, a stable shift from kelp forest to sea urchin barrens. And those sea urchin barrens are loaded with starving sea urchins. They have no seaweed or kelp to eat, but they live in this zombie state. They're zombie sea urchins running around on the seafloor. And the same thing happens in Tasmania, where the black sea urchin has taken over. So these urchin barrens are stable states of uh, a system that has been disrupted. And it's our challenge to find a way offshore to restore those ecosystem services and get us back on track with productive kelp forests. So this is a really recent phenomenon. Well, it is. Uh, we did see some in the past decades, but the partial failure of the California current upwelling and the associated ecosystem shift to urchin barrens has left the Northern California kelp forest 95% gone with no sign of recovery until we address the root cause of the problems. Wow. That's uh, shocking. Um, how well do we understand marine permaculture? Well, we've been developing it over the past decade. So ever since 2007, we've been researching this in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, where we have the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, the Marine Biological Laboratory. And in 2008, we collaborated with the University of Hawaii on deploying a deep seawater wave-driven pump uh, to bring water up from 350 meters down and we demonstrated the growth of algae. And so over two days, we saw algae growth. And even two weeks later, we had a 17-foot-long whale shark eating the plankton that had been created by this process. And so it's really a substantial validation by nature that uh, we had such a large trophic pyramid. There were also forage fish there, but in very small abundance. And the reason was there was no habitat. They were hiding next to the pipe. They were hiding next to the whale shark, trying to avoid game fish. But the game fish were everywhere trying to, to eat them. And so we realized then that food was not enough. Forage fish rely as much upon habitat as they do for food to sustain life. And habitat is absolutely essential. Uh, and as a diver of 40 years, every time I found habitat, I found fish. So build it and they will come. But I get the impression also from what you're saying that, that, that these ecosystems are very responsive, that they grow and develop quickly. 
Well, they, they grow enormously. Did you know that a kelp tree, a kelp forest, can grow half a meter per day vertically? I mean, that's how fast these grow. It's just amazing under replete conditions how quickly they can grow. Water bamboo. <laughs> yes, it's amazing. And what better natural habitat than a kelp forest for forage fish? And so as a bootstrapping method to restore the billions of sardines that once were perhaps off the islands of Sardinia or the Mediterranean or Japan or Africa, these are all places where we've harvested billions of fish. And uh, I, I must tell you a story. Off, off the west coast of Hokkaido in 1897, they harvested one million tons of sardines in one year. One million tons. And they did this year after year after year. And then finally, after uh, 1953, that population, there were herrings recently, really. The herrings population was driven extinct off west Hokkaido. Now, this herring population would migrate from Russia to Japan each year, back and forth, and they would lay their eggs in the Sakharina kelp forest. But it turned out, a few decades after the herring population disappeared, the Sakharina forest began to disappear. And we realize now that the herring were actually fertilizing the Sakharina forest, in addition to the forest providing the habitat for the spawning of the herring. And so you see, it's a virtual cycle. It's a cycle where each ecosystem depends on the other ecosystem. And what we must do with technologies like marine permaculture is reboot the ocean, bring back the Sakharina kelp forest, work with uh, the Japanese government to seed the herring population, get that started and growing in the kelp forest, and work out a treaty with Russia to preserve and keep this herring population and bring it back to its former glory. This is our challenge and our opportunity the world over. And is it kelp specifically, or is this part of a broader approach with other dimensions, with other um, kind of forests? It works with kelp forests. It works with red seaweeds. It works with brown seaweeds. It works the world over. There's 10,000 species of seaweed, and none of them are toxic. And so there's so much life and regeneration uh, in the ocean to be done. This is really about regenerating life in the ocean, ensuring that the 3 billion people who rely upon the sea for their protein can continue to survive, and ensuring that we can regenerate these ecosystems on which we have depended for so many centuries. So it sounds like uh, th this is a tremendously responsive system. But what is the potential, would you say, of marine permaculture when it comes to carbon fixing and when it comes to uh, climate change? Well, first of all, the basis for marine permaculture is that we can actually regenerate seaweed growth. We can irrigate seaweed farms around Asia and we can grow a lot of fish habitat and ultimately fish. Once that in place, it's enough fish not only to feed people, but also to regenerate the ecosystems. While all of these things are happening, as we mentioned previously, the kelp forest does a great job of fixing carbon, approximately 3,000 grams of carbon per square meter per year. And that means that uh, whatever seaweed is not used can actually be exported into the middle and deep ocean as a carbon sink. And by measuring the amount of kelp forest and kelp and seaweed, that actually passes beyond a thousand meters depth, 
we can be assured that that um, kelp will in fact stay um, even in oxidized form beneath the surface of this, the ocean for centuries to millennia. So the sequestration time of the carbon that's been transported to depth is based on the outcropping time of that water, uh, how long it takes to, to see the surface. And the, t- the amount of time it takes to see the surface determines the amount of time that the carbon is held at depth. And that tends to, that's the median time is centuries to millennia at depths of a thousand meters or greater. Right. And what kind of time frame are you looking at in order to uh, regenerate and to get marine permaculture, to get these kelp forests into a state where they're at a scale where we're starting to get some important results? Well, once we actually have a marine permaculture structure and we're upwelling water, it takes a matter of just a few months for the seaweed to grow and, and regenerate a kelp forest. So that's very quick. And the challenge and the opportunity is to build the capital infrastructure that's needed to build effectively irrigation for a seaweed farm and ultimately irrigation for offshore platforms that can grow seaweed. We're even considering the approach of uh, using offshore platforms as a base for growing square kilometers of seaweed, which can fix thousands of tons of carbon. And how, how, how many uh, test sites are there at the moment? What's the scale of operation of marine permaculture today? Well, we've done three uh, series of tests. The first was in Hawaii, and that was uh, based on the upwelling system. And so in very blue waters, we were able to upwell water and grow algae, and we demonstrated that work. Then just this year, we deployed off of uh, the north coast of Indonesia, a system that can uh, grow seaweed. It can grow seaweed better. They're they're dry months from August, September, October, where the seaweed doesn't grow well. And by restoring this overturning, we're able to, in fact, restore the seaweed growth so that it's able to effectively last during the dry months. And those are the months where you don't have the upwelling, you don't have the nutrients, and the water gets too warm. And... So that's a great opportunity to show that commercially relevant seaweeds can grow better with water from the deep. Then we plan next year to do phase three, which will be hectare scale arrays. And these hectare scale marine permaculture arrays will be able to uh, demonstrate that commercial scale seaweed farm can in fact be improved with irrigation. Once that happens, we expect to do hundreds and thousands of hectares in the months following. When you say commercial scale, what does that mean? Well, there are subsistence seaweed farmers who have one hectare plots, and they used to produce collectively in one region 12,000 tons of seaweed per year. And I just learned that in the last recent years, their production has dropped over 90% to just 720 tons. And so what we can do is help 2,000 subsistence seaweed farmers in Asia to uh, regenerate their previous capacity, regenerate their seaweed growing, and be able to produce not only the present seaweeds, but also some higher value seaweeds that require cooler water with better nutrients that they were able to grow in decades past, but cannot grow today. 
Right, right. Now you've talked about building the infrastructure. What, how does this work financially? What kind of capital investment are we talking about? How, how do you envisage it being financed? Well, today, the parts alone cost approximately $5 per square meter, which adds up to a lot if you're building a hectare or even hundreds of hectares. Uh, however, we have a roadmap of technical development that'll bring us below $1 per square meter. And once we've lowered the cost of marine permaculture to below $1 per square meter, then we'll be able to, uh, the payback time for these systems will be just a matter of uh, two or three years. And as a result, the economic performance of these will enable growing seaweed in large volumes, being able to fill existing and new markets for seaweed, for food, feed, and fertilizer, uh, for fish habitat, for fiber, and for biofuels, just to name a few. And so these half a dozen applications are less than half of the applications that we've actually found for seaweed. It's a really transformative industry. And what I like the best is that while we're actually restoring our economies, we can actually be regenerating life in the ocean and providing ecosystem services that will enable uh, seaweed forests, fisheries, and even coral reefs to regenerate at the same time. Very exciting. How well understood is this? And this is, is tremendous, uh, tremendous news. It's new in so many ways and so, so, so positive. Um, is everybody cheering? Is everybody, you know, this is something that is getting a lot of support. Are there people, uh, investors, are there different organizations? Is this something that is getting, getting people's attention at a policy, at an at a institutional level? Well, we have had support from numerous organizations, including the Government of Australia, Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. And uh, they provide this, well, they provided a challenge called the Blue Economy Challenge. And out of 220 organizations, we were selected as one of the winners of this uh, challenge. And that enabled us to move forward in, uh, in countries like Indonesia and related countries to be able to uh, d demonstrate the ability to irrigate uh, seaweed farms and be able to uh, actually regenerate their productivity. And so today, there are a thousand square kilometers under cultivation, and yet virtually none of them have irrigation. And imagine that you could bring irrigation to a thousand square kilometers or more of farmland. The transformation would be big. But imagine we then extend it to uh, hundreds of thousands of square kilometers. The ability to, in fact, uh, regenerate kelp forests, to uh, be, restore the productivity of the seaweed farms, and regenerate fish habitat to grow more fish. This is really a key opportunity, as we see it, to regenerate life in the ocean. And fundamentally, uh, it's as if we've just discovered irrigation, and suddenly uh, we can be so much more productive. And it's not, you know, it can be 12 months a year. And that's really a big difference, particularly in the tropics and the subtropics. So we see that as a key benefit. And we've had uh, the support of private foundations as well, including the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment. And we greatly appreciate that support as we grow and build capacity. And we're looking to uh, raise new interest and new investment that will enable the spawning of an entire industry. And that industry is the marine permaculture industry, and it will enable the sustainable growth of kelp forests and other seaweed habitats around the world in 
tropical, subtropical, and temperate waters. What kind of scale could you, you envisage this growing to over the next? I mean, the drawdown, it, we're looking over 20, uh, 2020 to 2050. Have you modeled or looked at how, how you anticipate it could grow? Well, we start relatively small, and that is the subsistence farmer's hectare scale farm is a great place to start where we can make a substantial difference today. And after we help thousands of subsistence seaweed farmers, we can expand to a scale of, say, 100 hectares. Uh, this would be like a square kilometer platform. It, it would typically go offshore. And historically, people have not grown much seaweed offshore. But in fact, if you go deep enough below the surface, you can escape the world's largest storms and you can escape the world's largest ships. And so by growing at a suitable depth for the seaweeds and for uh, it's possible to survive hurricanes, survive large ships navigation and be able to grow copious amounts of uh, seaweed and fixed carbon at the same time. So we anticipate a kilometer size array being able to fix at least 3000 tons of carbon per square kilometer per year. And the development of these will be determined by our being able to demonstrate that this franchise model works, that in fact, uh, you can grow seaweed, you can harvest fish sustainably, and uh, ultimately build a very sustainable economic model that can transform the economies of big ocean states the world over. They used to say small island nations, but we call them big ocean states. And these big ocean states are in dire need of sustainable economies. I mean, if imagine an island where a system like of 100 marine permacultures could potentially build an economy for an island of $100 million per year in revenue in seaweed and in sustainable fish. And each day, the uh, seaweed harvesting vessel would leave the island, go to the uh, the designated harvesting site, harvest one marine permaculture, a square kilometer of seaweed, and harvest some, some fish from the sides of the marine permaculture. And each night they would go back and bring the fish and the seaweed to the island where it would build, it would provide sustainable economies for uh, the, the processing of the seaweed and the fish. And then the next day they would go and harvest another marine permaculture. And you could have a hundred of these rotating in orbit in the lee of the island they're guided by the currents and by um, the effectively, uh, like kite surfing, you can use hydrofoils and underwater to make do the guidance and use the currents for navigation and guidance. And so this self-guidance method enables an island to manage 100 marine permacultures, and that island could have a production of $100 million of seaweed and fish each year. And to me, that's a regenerative economy that builds people's livelihoods. It enables an island to sustain itself. And imagine all the islands in the oceans and their uh, potential to regenerate life in the ocean at the same time they're feeding their people. Wow, and very exciting. It's, you know, I, I love the quote that um, Gandhi said, and that is, the world has enough for everyone's need, but not one man's grief. And to me, that's so... Uh, such a, a poignant position that we really need to be looking at what is enough. And it's really interesting. Nature, nature takes enough to survive, but not too much. And we see this in the soils. We see it in the ocean. 
And this balance of complex ecosystems with high diversity is something we need to emulate. And that's the inspiration behind permaculture. This idea that, uh, you know, it started with Bill Mollison in the, in the last century. And, and the notion that the marsupials of Tasmania could get everything they needed from the temperate rainforest without destroying that forest. And why couldn't humans do the same thing? That's the idea behind a multi-trophic, multi-species forest, a permaculture that serves humans and nature. Amazing. Amazing. So what are the key obstacles to this uh, growing, scaling? Well, we need to show that it works. We need to show that it uh, works at scale and that uh, we can replicate it the world over, uh, certainly in, in tropical and subtropical oceans. So uh, at the moment, uh, we're anticipating next year being able to demonstrate hectare scale marine permaculture, and then from there to grow it to kilometer scale. But we need to uh, raise the capital to do so, and uh, we need to find investors that are willing to invest in this technology development, and then ultimately uh, find investors that will put in the private equity and the debt that will, um, you know, lending that will enable uh, small communities to uh, build and utilize marine permacultures around the world and operate them to uh, sustain their populations. What do you get a sense of the difference in the, the economics from going from a hectare to a kilometer? Well, it becomes much more affordable because you have to have a, a pipe or other mechanism to bring water up from the deep, and you have to amortize that pipe across the area that's being irrigated. So just like any irrigation system, it does require a certain scale. And that's why we have developed a roadmap to move from the hectare scale to a larger scale. But we're very much interested in having local communities manage these and operate them and ultimately benefit from them. Absolutely. I was thinking about that, that distributed model um, and getting the uh, technology, getting the sites um, distributed and, and, and building interest. Are you getting interest from, from farmers? From, are you getting at a local level? Yes, we are. We have 2,000 seaweed farmers in the Philippines that are ready, willing, and able to assist in this. And uh, we've had a lot of support from uh, the Philippines, from the local governments, and from the communities. They're very enthusiastic to restore their seaweed production. Because if, you're, if your livelihood production was down a factor of 15 or 20, uh, you would want to be able to restore it. And fundamentally, we see marine permaculture as the best hope for regenerating seaweed forests, regenerating kelp forests, and regenerating life in the ocean. Are investors starting to sniff around? Yes, we certainly uh, have had a number of uh, in interest in, from uh, investors around the world, and that continues to this day. In fact, uh, we're working with uh, interested investors in Australia, in the United States, in Europe, and in Asia. So the next couple of years is uh, crucial. Yes, it is. We're on this development path. We're an overnight success, 10 years in the making, so to speak. And I believe the next couple of years could uh, reveal the uh, commercial development of marine permaculture to the point where it becomes scalable, that communities around the world can utilize marine permaculture to regenerate their fish populations, their seaweed forests, and their ecosystems. Absolutely. And do you worry about and the capital, the financing side of things? Very often, um, 
the deal you have to do, the, the, the finance, the, the whip hand, uh, doesn't always work for a small uh, individuals, for farmers, for small organizations. Are there concerns about that? Well, I think we do have to look carefully at how that comes, comes forward. But there are many organizations that work hand-in-hand hand with communities to try to make sure that there are sustainable livelihoods for farmers. And we encourage working with those organizations because they understand that it's a, a balance and there has to be a balance between, let's say, the livelihoods of farmers and uh, the larger scale processing and manufacturing. So I think it's a matter of engaging with those groups that have long-term interests and are truly motivated for uh, sustainable farming. In fact, we were invited just last week to Atlanta for the Carbon Farmers Innovation Network, where we met with many, let's say, Fortune 500 companies on um, the question of how do we uh, build sustainable carbon in seas and in the soils? And we have to use each. In fact, there are many applications where we can use seaweed to help provide uh, feed for livestock and even provide fertilizer for crops. And so it's this cross-fertilization, if you will, between ecosystems that can provide some of the greatest solutions uh, for our sustainable food supplies, food security on land and in the sea. Very exciting. Now, can we just talk about the timeframes? We've just had the IPCC latest report come out. Um, there's a lot of interest, uh, certainly in the media, um, in terms of what this means, the kind of time frames in which we've got to, to take action. Some people are talking about three to five years, the foundation, 14 years. We're looking at the drawdown over 30 years. How do you look at this in terms of time frames? There is no time to lose. The Trump administration has recently admitted that they are planning for a seven degree Fahrenheit global warming by the end of this century. Now, in what universe is that going to keep most of the 8 million species on this planet who cannot vote alive? You know, in what universe will that happen? I mean, we're at the brink of the Anthropocene, and our challenge and our opportunity is to keep most of these species alive, keep Mother Nature alive, so that she can keep us alive. Because at the end of the day, the Earth will continue, but we have civilization. And I'm willing to fight for civilization. I'm looking to our friends and colleagues who are willing to fight for the civilization of our planet for sustainable livelihoods and uh, keeping most of the species that were on this planet when we were born alive on our watch. And that's why what gets us up in the morning. That's why we do marine permaculture is to regenerate life in the oceans. So it's much bigger than just carbon, right? It's the ultimate fate of our civilization that matters here. And, you know, seven degrees Fahrenheit is simply not acceptable. You know, it's just, it's, it's a, a death sentence for most of the species on this planet. So our challenge and our opportunity is to help the big ocean states hold the line at 1.5 degrees Celsius with technologies like marine permaculture. And I would call out to all of the big ocean nations around the world and others to work with us to develop marine permaculture to the point where we can ensure the livelihoods, the ecosystems, and the carbon balance that we're going to need 
in order to hold the line at 1.5 degrees Celsius. We have a political consensus among over 190 nations to hold the line at 1.5 degrees. And we need the technological teeth to put behind that agreement. And marine permaculture, along with other drawdown technologies, are the technological teeth that can actually build the will to hold the line at 1.5 degrees. We have that political will today. We just need to back it up with technology. And that's what gets us up to work on marine permaculture and ensure that it will work. And we would love to partner with all the big ocean nations and uh, with others that may even be landlocked because we could use international waters potentially to grow seaweed offshore. And so that, as we see, is an enormous opportunity to engage with the global consensus to hold the line at 1.5 degrees Celsius. Very exciting opportunity and a lot of work, Brian. And thank you so much for talking to us today and sharing this fascinating and really important work you're doing. To the very best of success with it. Oh, it's my pleasure, Fergal. Thank you for listening to the Drawdown Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. We would really appreciate if you could help spread the word by leaving a rating on iTunes, sharing with your friends and on social media. You can find out more about Project Drawdown at drawdown.org. If you'd like to hear leading sustainability and environmental thinkers share their views on the biggest sustainability challenges we are facing, you can listen to the Sustainability Agenda podcast at the sustainabilityagenda.com, iTunes, as well as other leading podcast platforms including Stitcher, Podbean and Google Play.